If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Of course, I'm saying the word new because it's a new year. God be with you and bless your new year, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Can you do the splits? Show of hands. Braley, I thought of you with that question. It's like, I think maybe one. Braley might be able to, I don't know, you have to do the splits every day to keep on being able to do the splits. Like since you were born flexible and then lose, lose all your flexibility so quickly. Yeah, can't do the splits, but I bring it up for this reason. Martin Luther said that Christians need to get used to doing the splits. He didn't really say it like that. What he said was Christians need to get used to living with one foot here on earth and the other foot in heaven. That's two realities that meet in your life. One foot on earth and one foot in heaven. How far away are those? Don't ask. Okay, and don't watch. <laughs> see, see how poor my flexibility is. One foot on earth and one foot in heaven. In the gospel for today, you and I just read an account that could be a head-scratcher. In fact, if you are a skeptic coming into church today, not so sure about God, I think you could take a story like the slaughter of the babes in Bethlehem and say, I've got a little check against you, God. All-powerful, all-knowing God. And if that's the language of people who have one foot firmly planted on earth in a real world with the evil that you and I can spell out with our eyes and our experiences, what evil would be. This is one of those stories that really tugs on the heart. This is one of those offensive, where there's not a person on the planet that isn't offended by what King Herod would do just because he's such a psychopath and so paranoid about protecting his throne that he would, well, let's just send my soldiers in, grab any boy out of their mother's arms and slaughter them if you find them in Beth Bethlehem or the surrounding area. This, ladies and gentlemen, is in your Bible. This is a story that takes place after we find out Joseph is warned in a dream to flee because Herod wants Jesus dead, the babe that was proclaimed king in prophecy and by the magi who came to visit. And so right on the heels of hearing of safety and protection for Joseph and the child and the child's mother, who escape out to Egypt. The story goes on and says, but nobody came and gave a vision to the residents of Bethlehem warning them to flee because of what was going on. Instead, their two-year-old boys and under were mercilessly slaughtered by the ruling of a madman. Are you okay with this? And 
to begin, we have in our verse 13 mentioned that the Magi took off, right? And immediately we're given a dream that goes to Joseph to say, flee, for King Herod has these designs. So you get in on the no. The no from God, the no from God to Joseph and then through him, Jesus and Mother Mary, that something terrible is going on in the heart of King Herod. I bet there was no Jew in Judea at that time that would have any problem coming up with ways King Herod had offended them already by his outrageous behavior as king. They all knew it, but now it was fixed and targeted by a clue from the Magi on Bethlehem and this babe that was born there. So when you, when you take a story like this and begin to unpack how it flows, doesn't your, your, you just scratch your head. Doesn't your heart just sort of skip a beat as you recognize this could all have been done so much differently? If I were God, can't just King Herod die and no one would care? I'm not sure even his sons would weep for him. King Herod was one who's killed his own sons if he sensed they were too greedy for his throne they likely would have rejoiced. So, Lord God Almighty, how about a different solution where Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus don't have to pack the little that they have and spend the gold given them by the Magi on travel expenses and food along the way as they have to do this long trip through the desert to get to Egypt? You could spare them that. And Rachel weeping, Jeremiah 31, for her children, couldn't you have spared the 20-some boys that were perhaps murdered in that one hour? Got a little advice for you, God. It's a good opportunity for us as we focus today on such words, such an account, and what it is exactly that Matthew wants our hearts to do with it. Because that's good practice for your life. And it's not just you and evil in your world. It's for you to appreciate these two words, sonship and safety. I want to talk to you today about sonship and safety based on this section from Matthew chapter 2. You and I can use our human reason and your embarrassment at the evils of the world puts things with that reason on a certain scale. So certain crimes are worse than others. And our laws as common sense or as reason using humanity, laws are also fashioned that the worse the crime, the worse the punishment, and it fits in some sort of scale. 
So you and I get used to evaluating evil on the basis of some sort of scale. And you may say in your heart to God that you confess your sins, but there might be a part of your common sense and your reason that says, I am far better than many of the other people I know are out there in the world. And God could be a little happier with me than he is with them. But that's not God speaking. That's common sense and reason looking at this. And I mention that to you because you assess the troubles of the world, you assess the threats, the, the really bad threats, you know, the outcomes, the, the circumstances that are supposedly more wicked or more inherently evil. Um, you do it all the time as you juggle this. And to a degree, that has to happen, right? But spiritually speaking, there is a line where all of that reason comes to a halt. Spiritually speaking, when we stand under God and we begin to scratch our heads like this is a pretty embarrassing story. The angel comes and spares baby Jesus, but what happens to the babes of Bethlehem? I'm embarrassed. Can we just rip this page out of the Bible? It shouldn't be here. God was like taking a nap or something when this happened and he wasn't no, that can't be it. The angel came and told Joseph and was fully aware of everything that was going on in King Herod's heart. Reading it like a book. What do you do with your embarrassment to God? What do you do when you say, God, you owe me. I've been, I've been doing this for, I've been living my life. I've been coming to church. I've been trying to, my best to serve and honor you in the things that I've done. And now you're going to bring this evil in my life. You're going to let this person prosper. And you're going to let me get the short end of the stick. See how your reason just juggles this all the time. And there's a certain spot. It has to stop and zip it. And that's exactly what happens here. Because truth be told, if God were to put down every evil heart and its every intention and keep every person safe from your sin and mine, there's a word for that. It's called judgment day. When all things will be revealed and the hearts of all exposed there is a time and a place. But there's also a way in our little hearts and our faith lives. We have to learn. We have to learn. What do we say? What do we say about this evil? What is God doing? And those two words, sonship and safety, have to mean something to you. So let's talk about it. First, sonship. What does Matthew do? before he goes to the slaughter of Bethlehem that happens to those infant boys two years and under. He stops the presses. Joseph is fully obedient to the vision that he heard. He packs up the child and his mother and he heads off into Egypt. They're going into Egypt and Matthew, Matthew, without hesitation, he interrupts the whole story and he's becoming the storyteller, right? As a prophet of God, as, a, as a inspired by God to say this. This is what fulfills what God said. 
This is what fulfills what God said. It's Hosea chapter 11. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. I think it's funny that they're going into Egypt and Matthew then stops when they get into Egypt. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Just because he's gotten into Egypt, Matthew wants to stop everything and say, Egypt, did you hear that? Egypt, did you hear that? Egypt, Egypt, Jesus is in Egypt. Because guess what? Sonship is all about putting all of history and scripture together and recognizing scripture's magnetic draw to Jesus, whether from before Jesus' time, it's magnetized to Jesus, or after, in the words of the apostles, it's magnetized to the person and work and identity of Jesus. So even though you can go back to Egypt when God's people had entered freely and become slaves, right? They entered freely in the time of Joseph and then they became enslaved for a long period of time, a few generations, right? Until Moses was sent to deliver them out. And out of Egypt, Hosea 11 is saying, I have called my son. My son was the people, the people who were enslaved just like all humanity is enslaved to sin. And God calls that, what? My, my son. And he takes this nation as a child to himself. And when they proclaimed God, they made children by faith of this God, telling them about his love and his deliverance and his power and his grace to them, right? And then they threw it all away and they adulterated themselves out of the family. They abandoned, they left home, they packed up their bags. They said, I want to have nothing to do with this house or your name, God, and they adulterated themselves with idols. This is Old Testament history, isn't it? All of its foreshadowing. Feel the pull to what Hosea says and Matthew's eyes light up to tell you this part. Do you see that in Jesus there is a son? Just as the nation, the people, the humans, the sinful humans were to be brought out as God's own people and they abandoned it, so now Jesus. Jesus is the one who is the Son for you. The stand-in for humanity is there in this word from Matthew. This is what he's telling you. He's telling you that Jesus is your brother. That Jesus is your Savior, your substitute stand-in in the heart of God. He is the Son of God in the midst of humanity that all of us would be drawn to him and share in sonship, Galatians 4, what we read today. You are adopted in Christ, the Redeemer, who saved you and bought you out. You have now received adoption to sonship. That's a status. And for people with one foot on the earth, you need to know, as Christians, Luther was right, the one foot you have in heaven. Whatever reason may say, and I wish we could sit down privately and have all one-to-ones 
of the troubling things or the evils, the head scratchers that you have that maybe cause your walk with God to slow down, that we could talk about it and we would tie every foot in your life that's in heaven and put another foot and make sure you know it's planted in sonship. It's planted here because of Jesus. Do you see what Matthew just gave you? He just gave you a son. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. That Jesus would fulfill this for you. And you know what happens next as they leave. And in the next part of the story, the worst, you, the worst by human reason takes place where in unfathomable imagination you are asked to consider what it must have been like to have soldiers going up and down the streets of Bethlehem, scouring the homes, surprising the families out of the blue, grabbing any boy and mercilessly killing it with parents left helpless to do anything about it. And Matthew, by inspiration, hits pause. And he sees what Rachel wept for from her grave. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, the wife he loved, so she didn't mother all 12 sons, right? but she is still representative type of the mother of this nation, the mother of the Israelites in that passage. That she's weeping for her children because they are no more. Is Jeremiah 31 because Jeremiah understood the captivity to Babylon as God's people were ripped out of their homeland, their promised land because of their own sin and led off into captivity. And she sees them depart from her grave and she weeps, refusing to be comforted. And guess what Matthew does? Here I see something happening again. Rachel, those poor mothers of Bethlehem, who are longing for a savior and as soon as he was born, we sing with heart's delight, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see you lie. And now we have to see their hearts so rocked and shaken by the worst of imaginable horrors a mother could experience. And they weep uncontrollably for their children who are no more. What do you say? What are you saying with this passage, Matthew? If you read Jeremiah 31, and maybe that's a good follow-up to this, you can add it, Dave, to your worship folder. Dave told me before church that they like to take the worship folder home and reflect on the readings as devotions later in the week. So look up some of these prophecies and see that right in the midst of the weeping without any hope of comfort, the hopeless weeping of Rachel in captivity, and see what Jeremiah says next. As he says, please rejoice and see the work of a merciful God who 
saves his people from their sins and forgives their wickedness and rebellion and remembers them no more. That's Jeremiah 31, isn't it? He pleads for them to do it. We had a miscarriage. One in six is what the word of my family doctor father would say. No matter how healthy you are or how good the hospital care, one in six, it just is what it is. You know what that's like to a degree. And many of you do too. What would you do if you walked in the streets of Bethlehem and you heard them weeping for days on end? I think we would weep with them. But, can there be a but? Can we not also see the hope that God alone has put into the world, however wicked it may be? Sonship. Those babes circumcised on the eighth day? If that's the Old Testament sacrament that best parallels baptism, if God did through circumcision what he says he does in baptism, is it possible that they were more than sons of Bethlehem parents? That they were also sons of a father in heaven? They lost their life before they turned two? But what, but, that's real. One foot on earth, but what's true of sons? What's true is the other foot in heaven. And when their lives were taken from them, that's where they went. I had no sacrament for a miscarriage. What is the comfort? Do you know? When someone miscarries, is there comfort? Generally speaking, the Lutheran Church has never batted an eye to go and comfort those who have lost someone to miscarriage. Why? Because God has not given you a sacrament, yet you would have baptized had this child been born or even breathed for five minutes. You would have used those five minutes to baptize your child knowing that they needed Jesus. That's the whole other foot. That's the most important one, sonship. And you would have circumcised, you would have baptized, you would have done it, right? And then we would have this comfort that God did what God did. And he's God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away and may the name of the Lord be praised. I have my reason thrown into the garbage because I have my scripture that tells me he is love. And I will not abandon scripture at the expense of what I think or how I feel. So they weep, and we weep, the one foot. But isn't there something else? And in the third little account, as we finish these little, what are they, little pictures, little small scenes, each one with scripture, the last one, is, and then Joseph was told King Herod had died. And now he's got these sons who are just as wicked as, 
as he was, and just as intolerable in their way that they would rule so unjustly and mercilessly carry things out in their paranoia for the throne. They were just as much the wicked tyrant you would ever have. And, and jo- Joseph is warned or told in a dream that he could return because King Herod was dead, but he was also warned in a dream and afraid of the new rulers that took their place. So they end up going back home to Nazareth, and he will be called a Nazarene, Matthew says. This fulfills the scriptures. He'll be called a Nazarene. Well, guess what? You won't find an Old Testament passage that says he'll be called a Nazarene like that, but you will find an Old Testament that says he will be a nobody. He will be despised and rejected by people. He'll be one where the only way to have one foot in this world is to be despised and rejected by mankind. But that doesn't at all say anything about his other foot. And it doesn't for you either. The default for all of us was to despise and reject God until he, in his glorious, powerful grace, made light of faith shine in your heart. That's true. We too would despise and reject God had he not intervened by his spirit through the gospel to call you to faith. And that is where this little word, Nazareth, means something. That the Old Testament would picture one who's willing to be despised and rejected, unafraid of such rejection, unashamed to be so surrounded in the midst of its company that he would make his home here on earth, that he might also do God's stuff for us with it and in our midst and for us and for our salvation as we confess in the creed. He'll be called a Nazarene is just another way to say laid in a manger if you remember our Christmas Eve meditation together the lowliness that he was willing to do, the poverty he embraced. The disciples were offended when they heard he's from Nazareth. Nazareth, do you remember? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Your kings aren't supposed to come from small towns. He'll be called a Nazarene. So there they went, and there he grew up, unashamed of any part of it. I told you there were two words today, sonship. You're one foot in heaven. And what was the other one? Safety. (coughs) Let me tell you, who wins when you get done reading chapter two? Who wins? Who loses? Would you dare say that King Herod, for all his prominence, power, position that he held, the one in the story who can do what he wants, does he not lose? In fact, he dies a horrible, diseased death, like his skin just flat out rotted away off to his bone. Does King Herod not lose? Oh yeah, he loses. He doesn't get Jesus. He wanted to kill Jesus. And even those who were the innocent bystanders, those babes of Bethlehem, he can kill them with the sword, but he didn't accomplish his goal. He may have thought he did, but he didn't. He lost. Who won? 
One of the things I think we'll get to do in heaven, and I hope the Lord allows us to do this, is to take a microphone around the people of heaven and to ask them about their story and to hear them praise God up and down for the way that he ruled and reigned and brought them victory because they're clothed in it. They are dressed in that victory. And you can go one-to-one. -one, and in you, when you do that, you might find little babes of Bethlehem who were cut short their life before they were two years old. And you would say, are you mad at God? <laughs> and of course they'll say, absolutely not. It's for his sake and through his son that I am what I am today and for all eternity. That's a powerful reality. That's an important planted foot in heaven that we have, isn't it? To be able to say that whatever powers there be in the world, that there's no evil, there's no king, there's no nation, there's no force, there's no Satan, there's no lie, there's no sin, there's no curse that ever holds sway over you in the kingdom of God because of Jesus. So take safety. And in all the ways you think of living a safe life and having security in life, throw them in the garbage with your human reason and say, I don't know what safety is until I've been magnetized to Christ. Now I know what it means to be safe and secure, whether I'm in flight to Egypt or whether my children are ripped out of my arms. I will never know the meaning of safety. I will never know comfort from God if I don't have it in this Christ. And that's Christmas. So God be with you, sons and daughters of the King. Amen.